Reading from the Old Testament, Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14. The Valley of Dry Bones. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out of the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the words of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord said to these bones. I will make breath enter you and will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. As I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling noise, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, tendons and flesh appeared on them, and the skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. And they came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open the graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you know that the Lord has spoken and I have done it declares the Lord. Reading from Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 5 through 12. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, Son of man, can you see this? Then he led me back to the river when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the east region and goes down into Erboth, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will flow. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So when the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore of En Gedi to Engahim, and there will be places for nets. 
The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean. But the swamps and the marshes will not become fresh, for they will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The book of Ezekiel gives us two really weird and different visions here. Uh, it's okay, Ezekiel's the weirdest guy in the Bible. It's fine to acknowledge that. The first one from uh, chapter 37 is, is, is just specifically taken at face value. It's got sort of two specific things that it's talking about. One, he's talking about, to some extent, the return of the Israelites from, from exile. Ezekiel is a prophet during the period when the people of Israel are living in exile in Babylon and they're under oppression. Uh, and so much of what he writes comes from that point of view. And so there is a bit in there that seems to be referencing the time when God will bring them back to the promised land like he always said. But it's also very, very explicitly talking about the idea that one day God will in fact literally raise them from the dead and bring them back to new life. It's... it's this foundational promise of, of what the Jewish people believe, that, that they are waiting and waiting and waiting for the day when God will fulfill all his promises to them, when he will bring them back even from the dead and undo all of the wrongs of history. It's what we believe too. It's what the resurrection of Jesus was meant to show us. And then there's the, the river of life story, which if, if you uh, have paid attention well enough, you'll know I've already preached on to you since I got here. So if you forgot about that, um, we'll have to talk later. Um, but it's this great image of the river of life flowing out of the temple and bringing life to wherever it goes. Not only, not only actually literal growing plants and things on the sides of the river where you'd expect, but even flowing into the Dead Sea, the saltiest body of water in the world where nothing can live, and flowing into it so powerfully that it brings life to where there is only death. This great, beautiful image of, of the life-giving water, right? The, the, the reference that Jesus himself makes, right? I am the water of life. I give you living water to drink. And this promise that if we do what we're supposed to do, and if we follow God's commandments, and we live the way we're supposed to live, and we believe in Jesus, then the river of life flows from us. All of that is rooted here in the Old Testament. And that's all good for you to know. 
But as with so many other things, these texts can tell us something specific about our immediate circumstances as well. I mean, it's good to know and believe in the resurrection that's coming, but it's also good to look at these and try and figure out how God may be speaking to you right here and right now. And I suspect there are a lot of people, both in this church and in all of our churches, who really do feel in some sense like they're in the Valley of Dry Bones. Like they've given all they have to give. And they're tired and they're worn out. They're discouraged. Perhaps they can't see a way forward. Lord knows we live in discouraging times. And they're just waiting for God to do something. And the good news is, It's in moments like that and times like that that God works most powerfully. Awakening always begins in in places where it seems impossible, where it seems like everything is lost and then moves until you get to this river of life vision. Awakening starts in dry and desolate places and moves the people of God into abundant and rich life together. Our world is obviously in need. It is a broken place. We're divided and we're angry. There's just incredible amounts of of hatred and, and bitterness. It's a dark place. But you know, if you water a plant constantly, what happens to it? Yeah. Hey, good job. You actually answered a question. Do you know how hard it is to get Methodists to answer a question in a sermon out loud? Well done. Way to go. Yeah, if you water a plant too much, it dies. It drowns. You have to leave it for a bit to let it grow. This is how God works in us. He can't be constantly pouring into us and making everything good all the time because if he does, we'll never grow. We stagnate. And nothing good happens. And so sometimes God does, in fact, lead us into dark and desolate times and dark and desolate places and gets us to a point where all we can see is our desperate need and our brokenness and the brokenness all around us. Because otherwise, otherwise we will not grow. You can't begin to fully appreciate the love and the grace and the mercy of God until you understand just how much it's needed. And sometimes learning that lesson is a bit more painful than we would like. Most people who come to church and who call themselves Christians will say that they would love to see another great awakening, another great movement of the Holy Spirit sweeping across the nation and revitalizing churches and bringing new life everywhere. But, but, but the, the thing with awakenings is um, they don't start as these big, grand movements. They start small. They start at the individual level. If you want to bother to do the research, every great awakening in history has actually started usually with just a couple of people praying, sometimes for years. And then gradually it begins to move outward. But the key takeaway here is that awakening doesn't begin 
out there. It doesn't even begin necessarily with all of us all at once. It begins right in here. It begins in your own heart. For there to be an awakening, each and every one of us has to realize that we are standing in the valley of dry bones and our bones are among them. And so often we don't realize just how bad things have gotten, even in our own spiritual life. We think we'd recognize the darkness creeping in as soon as we saw it, because obviously light and darkness are two very different things. We think we'd see it, but the reality is often the darkness creeps in on us so slowly and gradually we don't pick up on it. And all of a sudden one day we look up and realize we can't see the light anymore. And there are a whole lot of people in our churches these days for whom that's true. And they never saw it coming. And in so many ways, they're now cut off. And they have trouble seeing the light and the goodness of the world. They are just like the dry bones on the floor of the valley. Son of man, can these bones live? Do you notice when God asked the prophet Ezekiel, can these bones live? Do you know what his response is? His response isn't optimism. He doesn't say, yeah, sure, God, of course they can. You can do anything. He doesn't have a plan for it. He doesn't, he doesn't think he knows the answer. He just says, I don't know, God, you tell me. I got nothing. Only you know the answer. And I wonder how much that humility is the reason why the vision progresses after that. That humility to come to the Lord and say, you know what, I have no idea. And, and think about what that means for him, by the way. Because right, the, the right and holy answer is, Lord, with you, all things are possible, right? You're God. You can do what you want. But merely by saying, actually, God, only you know the answer to that question, he's, he's even expressing on his own level some degree of doubt. You know what, God, I, I have to admit that I'm not sure even you can do that. And, and don't we all have those same doubts? I'm not sure even God can fix our problems. Maybe we have to acknowledge that from time to time. Lord, only you know the answer to these things. I don't even know if you can do it. So he said to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I will make breath into you. And by the way, that word breath, the Hebrew word is ruach, and it means spirit. It also means breath. They use the same word for both. So he's not just talking about literal breath. He's talking about, I'm going to, by putting my spirit into them, and you will come to life. It's not just breath. It's not just a spirit. It is the spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, that brings new life into this dark and desolate and dry place. But my favorite part is that first, God does something. First, God draws the bones together and, and puts flesh back on the bodies and reconstitutes them and does all this wonderful stuff. And then, then, he lets Ezekiel do the other part. The breath enters them because Ezekiel tells it to. Right? Prophesy to the breath, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath entered them, and they came to life and stood upon their feet, a vast army. 
So there's a twofold thing going on here. First, God has to begin the work, but then he invites his people to participate in it. It starts with God, and then he brings us along to help him out. Not because he needs our help, but because it's good for us to participate in the work that God is doing. And there's a twofold thing here. What brings new life to the bones is first the word of God. Right? Dry bones hear the word of the Lord. And next, it's the spirit of God, the breath. See, we tend to think that the best way to get a new awakening in the church, to, to begin a revival, to re-inspire people's faith and reinvigorate them, is to learn something new, to discover something new, to teach them something they didn't know before. But it doesn't really work that way. It doesn't come from discovering new things. It comes from rediscovering the first things, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Remember the first words, the first few sentences of of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word creates. The word saves. The word is the light shining in the darkness. Remember what Jesus says as he's tempted in the desert by Satan. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, this isn't just something you learn from. It is nourishment for your soul. You have to feed that part of you just like you feed the rest of you. In fact, you are. The things you consume, the books you read, the shows you watch, the music you listen to, all of it, all of it feeds into your soul in one way or another. You're feeding it something you might want to ensure that you're feeding it the best thing. Nourishment for your soul. But first you have to actually hear it. It means you have to come to it uh, not trying to impose the things you want on it. And this is where so many of us stumble because we read it and we come to it and we, we think we know what it's supposed to say. We think we know what it should say. We certainly know what we want it to say. And as long as we know what we want it to say, it's going to say it. We will deafen ourselves to the voice of God speaking to us through this and impose our own voice in it. You have to hear it. And it's important to recognize, my friends, that to hear it, you have to actually read it. You have to open it up and and look at the words on the page and read them. And if this really is nourishment for our soul, if this is the best thing for us, it makes sense that we ought to read it then every day. And don't raise your hands, but how many of you actually are reading it every day? And maybe there are people who, are, who have like a, one of those devotional books that has like one sentence of scripture and then four pages of someone talking about it. And my friends, please hear me. Those are good. They have good teaching in them. I know many, many people are blessed by them every single day. But I want to suggest to you that if you're only reading one sentence of Scripture a day, you're probably starving yourself. You might need to do more. It doesn't mean throw away the devotional booklet. It means maybe do more in addition to that. Those things are great for helping you understand what you read, but, but you need to actually read more than just a sentence a day or a paragraph a day. 
And there is no such thing as having read it enough. Maybe you've read the whole thing all the way through a few times. Do it again. You will find something in there you don't remember. God will speak to you in new ways. You know, I, I don't know what I had for breakfast last Wednesday morning. But I know I ate something, and I know that the food I ate fueled me during the day. Likewise, I don't actually know what I read in the Bible last Wednesday morning. I forgot. But I know I read it. And I know that by reading it, I sustained myself for the day. I, I helped shape myself into a better follower of Christ that day. So you see, it doesn't, it doesn't even necessarily matter if you actually remember every word you read, if you remember everything that you hear from it, if you, if you feel like you're reading it and you're not getting anything out of it, just read it anyway. Because sometimes that's all you need that day, is just to read it and be blessed by it and to know and trust that the Lord is moving through it in you and in your life. I guarantee you, if you read this every day, you will notice a difference. It will happen. Because this right here is the primary means through which God communicates to his people. It's the root of it all. If you're not reading it every day, you're going to be in trouble because you will lose your way from time to time. So this is one half of the beginning of an awakening, reading your Bible. The second half is the Spirit of God. The breath of life. Literally, when God breathes life into Adam and Eve, it is the word, same word, ruach, spirit, wind, breath, all the same thing. Even sometimes when we, when we hear the word, even when we read it every day, sometimes we have closed ourselves off to the Spirit as we do so. And it's like cutting off your breath. If you're not open to what the Spirit is doing as you are reading the word, you're probably not going to get everything out of it you need to. There's a, a thing that happens when they make you go to seminary. Uh, they, they make you read a lot of supposedly very smart people who have read the Bible and written a lot about it. Um, and, and sometimes you read it and you go, oh, this is wonderful, this is brilliant, this helps make so much more sense of this. And then sometimes you read it and go, how on earth did they get that from this? And, you know, there's some people who are very, very intelligent and they've read the Bible and they know every word of it and they can quote it to you at length and they, they know all the history behind it and they know all of, of the cultural context and they can read it in the Greek and the Hebrew and yet they have no clue what God is actually saying because they have closed themselves off from the Spirit. Do you know that, that pretty much everything that Christians believe all of our theology, all the teachings of the church for the past 2,000 years, you know, that didn't come from, from scholars, from, from great, well-educated minds who were brilliant. It came, actually, from you people. The worshipers, the congregations, the people of God who came to church on Sunday, even in the midst of persecution, and read their Bibles, even in the midst of persecution, and, and, and prayed and interpreted most of what we believe, we believe because of the consensus of billions of Christians over 2,000 years. People who have opened themselves up to the Holy Spirit and read the book and have all heard the same thing. 
Do you know the incredible thing is that even though this book is quite likely the oldest surviving text of any kind in the world when you factor in some of the oldest books of the Old Testament, no other book in history has been as well preserved and as accurately preserved as this. There are, in fact, people who have come to the faith because they were studying ancient texts and realized that none of the other texts that we have, none of, none of the writings of the Greek philosophers or the Roman historians or even the ancient Babylonians are as well preserved or as accurately maintained as the words of Scripture. It is to an inhuman level. Because even as people were writing it down and passing down, even before it was written, when it was still an oral tradition only, the Spirit of God was moving amongst his people and speaking to them the things that needed to be said. And that same Spirit will connect with us and speak to us and speak through us. The beauty of this, of course, means that you all are actually just as qualified to interpret Scripture as I am if you just open yourself to the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean you can tell me I'm wrong. See, when, when the Word of God meets the Spirit of God in the midst of the people of God, we begin to experience awakening. We begin to see God doing new things and the dry bones begin to come alive. And things start anew. And see, then that's the moment when that river of life starts to flow out from us. And here again we have another stumbling block. Because by, by its very nature, this, the river of life imagery tells us that there's something that's supposed to be profoundly public about our faith. Right? What does the river do? It flows out from the temple into the world. It brings life wherever it goes. It widens and it deepens as it goes. It goes into the, the dead places like the Dead Sea and forces out the bad water. It goes out from the temple. And for far too long, we've let ourselves believe that our religion is supposed to be a private thing. A man's faith is his own business, right? Do you know there's actually nothing at all in the Bible that says that? And, and maybe if we read it more, we'd know that. It's not one word in here that says, keep your faith to yourself. At no point does it say that. Quite the opposite, in fact. It says over and over again, you should probably tell people what's in here. They might need to know. Even in the Old Testament, by the way, there's nothing in it that says y'all should not keep your faith to yourself. In fact, it says the opposite. It says if you have strangers in your land, you should invite them to come and worship with you. Bring them to your Passover meal. Include them. Let them see the work that God is doing in you. Let them see the blessings of the Lord that come when you follow his word. Our faith is a public faith. The very idea that it should be private, that no one around us should know that we are a practicing Christian, that's nonsense. You won't find a word of that in the Bible. If people around you don't know that you're a Christian, something has gone wrong. This doesn't mean you have to be annoying about it. You don't have to be the Christian who won't shut up and won't, won't stop bothering people about it. But they ought to know. They ought to be able to tell. There ought to be something different about you and about the way you live your life and about the way you, you go about your day that clues them in to the fact that 
that you've got something that they don't. In other words, there should be a river of life flown out of you. And the people around you should see it, should feel it, should benefit from it. Right? The trees will grow up around it and, and their fruit will be for the food of the nations and their leaves will be for healing. That, that's the end goal of an awakening. Not just to fill our churches more. Not, not just to make sure that there are more people who believe like we do so that they can all vote the right way which I know is exactly how some people want it to go. So that the river of life will flood out from us. Will flood out onto the people who need it. And bring nourishment and healing and will push away the dark and desolate and dead places and bring new life wherever it goes. That's the goal to flood the world with the river of life. And it begins right here with us, each one of us individually. God is saying to you, come alive. And all you really need to do is open yourself up to the Holy Spirit and then open this. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.